In an area hospital, Pastor Pratt and I recently shared an elevator ride with a newborn baby and the new mom and dad. As we were descending the elevator, I broke the silence and asked them if this was the first one. They kind of had that look about them. And they assured me that it was. This was their first baby. And I reminisced for a moment or two with them about how strange it felt to take our firstborn home from the hospital. This overwhelming realization that this little package is yours and you've got to do something with it. And I think the big question really is what? What do we do with our children? The young mother on the elevator went right past all of that and informed me that she couldn't wait to have the next one. In fact, she was hoping for twins real soon. Well, I'm not so sure what she's thinking about it right now, and after about 15 days with no sleep, she might have a different opinion, I don't know, but having kids certainly is one thing, isn't it? Knowing what to do with them is quite another matter. And I suspect that reality is beginning to dawn on that new mom as it has dawned on every parent. It's not always easy to know what to do. Opinions differ so widely, and I certainly make no claim to have all of the answers here today by any means, but I am convinced that as parents and as a church, we will totally miss the mark unless we realize that parenting is worship. Parenting is worship. The parenting of children is a daily expression of the devotion of a parent's heart. Many parents worship their children. They give birth to living, breathing idols. Many parents worship themselves in their children. And many parents worship themselves by having children in the first place. But for those of us who have been born again, we know that the devotion of our heart belongs in one place and one place only. And that is a devotion to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is He alone that we are to worship. And the parenting process is an act of worshiping Him. For the born-again believer, parenting can never be about preserving the family name. Never about living vicariously through our children. Never about securing companionship for the future. Never about binding husband and wife together. Never about displaying our skill as parents. Never about taking pride in our children's accomplishments. That is never what parenting is about for one who has been genuinely saved. Parenting is at its very core an expression of devotion to Jesus Christ. And in promotion of that devotion, I offer these two assertions. We have words of exhortation, and just assembling them from various passages to encourage us in this one shot as we deal with parenting in just one day. Let me say, first of all, as we seek to devote ourselves to Christ, as we seek to honor Him in our parenting, the first consideration must be attitude. We must hold a right perspective of our children. We could give a long list of ideas here, but I've assembled these along three lines. Our attitude. How do you see your children? How do you perceive them? This is part of the way in which we bring honor to the Lord as we deal with parents. I'd invite us to Psalm 127. 
Psalm 127. We look at familiar words, but let's remember them and allow the Spirit of God to teach us and to instruct us on what we do know, perhaps, and have seen often. But we must see, first of all, that our children are a gift from God. It seems fairly obvious, but it needs to be said. They are a gift from God. Psalm 127 and verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for He grants sleep to those He loves. We cannot squeeze blessing out of life by human effort alone, I think is the gist of these verses. Every blessing in our lives comes ultimately from the gracious hand of God. A singular example of the grace of God in the human experience is found in verse 3, and that deals with children. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from Him. These two parallel statements indicating that they are a gift from God. This is an interesting word, heritage, as we have it translated here The Hebrew word could be translated also possession or property. The point is not that children are the sole possession of their parents, but I think we read this in context. In the context of the Hebrew nation, when you heard the idea of inheritance, it was very difficult, if not impossible, to think apart from the land. Remember the land that was promised to Abraham. I will give you an inheritance. The promised land. Abraham goes to that land. And we know in the long history of Israel, they leave that land and are in Egypt and then come back. And under Joshua and this great conquest, the land is reconquered, is taken, in fact, for the first time by the Israelites. And they find it to be a fertile and glorious land. And what happens with that land? Remember that it is divided by lot to the various tribes. And in the dividing of that land, God indicates His sovereign right to bless His people. Each tribe inherits from the Lord a portion of this land that they did not build up. A portion of this land that they received directly from the hand of God, and they saw the land as their inheritance. Children, in like manner, are a heritage from the Lord. They are a trust. They are a gift. They come from God. They are a reward. Again, not a reward for services rendered. That's how we might normally take the word in English. But the idea, again, is parallel with the first part of the verse. They are a heritage that comes from God. They are a gift from Him. We must worship God by always seeing our children in this light. And just as Israel would never claim that the promised land was hers apart from God, so we should always think of our children as a gracious gift from the Lord. And I think it is true also a gracious gift to this church. We are uniquely blessed with an abundance of children. Sometimes it's an overabundance, it seems. It seems a bit overwhelming at times, the youthfulness of our church and the number of children that are here. But do we recognize what a distinct blessing this is? There are churches right in our own city, I know of at least one, that is essentially the size of our assembly. The last I heard had one child in the whole church. 
What a blessing from God it is that we have been given the stewardship of children here, the gift of children. And I think in light of what God is saying here, that children are a heritage from the Lord and a reward from Him, if we think of children as a nuisance or as unimportant or second-rate citizens to be ignored, we have a spiritual problem. Jesus did not think that way about children, and it is evil for any of us to do so. Children are a gift from God, and they should be seen in that light. We should view them in that way. God is magnified as the giver of every good gift, and one of those gifts is children. How do we see them? How do we perceive them? They are a gift from Him. They are, secondly, I would say, that we must see our children as sinners in need of Christ. We must see our children as sinners in need of Christ. Remember, again here, these are obvious ideas to us who know the Lord and are part of a biblically-minded church. But these are not ideas that fly very well out in that world, are they? We must be careful not to be influenced by wrong thinking. We must see our children as sinners in need of Christ. Jesus sacrificed His life to pay the death penalty for sinners. And we dishonor Jesus when we look at our children as less than sinful. As if his sacrifice was not really all that necessary. Now, we should not run around reminding our children of their sinfulness in obnoxious and overzealous ways. It's not a matter they come home from school one day or at a friend's house or down at a neighbor's place playing and they come back into the house and you say, Welcome home, dirty, rotten sinner. It's not that. We don't need to do it. We don't need to put it in their face like that. But we do need to be awake to the reality that our children are indeed born in sin. And they are desperately needy of the salvation that is provided by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They need it. They are born in sin. We won't take time to read Romans 3, 10 through 12 and Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But these passages make that very clear. And they need, as all of us do, repentance, Acts 17 and verse 30. In order to honor the sacrifice of Jesus, we must see our children as sinners and take their spiritual condition seriously. Parents who do not see parenting as an intense spiritual battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, frankly, are asleep and need to wake up. We're in a spiritual battle here, and that's how we need to see this process. We need to see that our children are a gift from God. We need to see that our children are sinners in need of Christ. And we must see, thirdly, that our children are a stewardship from God. Every gift from God includes a call to responsible stewardship. God never gives us a gift in order that we would worship it. He never gives us a gift that He invites us to squander on our selfish interests. If God has given you children, if God has given to this church children, then He has given us a stewardship. He has placed children in our care so that we will manage our relationship to them in such a way that His name is magnified and exalted. You know, one day, Christian parent, we will give account to God for how we've parented our children, and we will, as a church in some respect, give account for how we have managed and seen the children of our assembly. 
And on that day, I don't think that God will probably care a lot about some of the things that consume our attention. I think that he will care most about whether or not we parented our children in a way that glorified his name. That is what will matter in the end. That is what must matter on a day-to-day basis. Is there an integration between the future where you are headed and the present-day relationship that you have with your children? They need to be brought together. I will stand before God to give an account. I must parent on a day-to-day basis as if that is in fact the future that awaits me. We must learn to think this way. We must learn to see parenting as a stewardship. I think among the saddest words in Scripture are those that were delivered by a man of God to the priest Eli. In 1 Samuel 2.29, he says this to the priest of the tabernacle. Why do you honor your sons more than me? How terrible it would be to stand guilty before God of that charge. Our relationship with our children, parents, is not to rival our love for God. It is to be an expression of our love for God, a stewardship by which we glorify Christ. This is a big deal. Not simply in theory, but in practice. Do we realize this stewardship for which we will give an account? I hang just these few thoughts on the idea of attitude, the idea of perspective. How do we see our children? Let's move secondly then to action. From attitude to action. Secondly, we must pursue a right agenda with our children. The Bible commends us to take physical care of our children. The mother of Proverbs 31 gets up early in the morning to feed her family, verse 15. She works diligently to see that they are clothed, verse 21, in her unique context. The Apostle Paul writes that a man who does not provide for his family is behaving in a manner that is worse than an unbeliever, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. But where I would like to concentrate our attention this morning is on one verse a summary text that focuses on the spiritual nurture of our children. This is the agenda. And I ask that question of you, of us as a church. What agenda should Christian parents pursue with their children? At what should they aim? Whether those children are yours potentially in the future, whether they are yours now, whether they are your children's children, whether they are the children of this church, what is the right agenda? How should we be training them and leading them? What should we be doing with them? We know of the classic text in Ephesians 6.4. Let's turn there and consider it together. I'd like us just to soak in this verse for a few moments in which Paul crystallizes the agenda of the Christian parent in this letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Fathers, Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's curious here that he does not address mothers because he does in verse 1 and he does under the word parents and he does in verse 2 as he refers to honoring father and mother. I think Paul is not by any means excluding mothers here. 
They're included in the idea. But I think that he is probably emphasizing the headship of fathers as described in chapter 5 and verse 23. And I think that he is also seeing them then as the agenda setter for the family. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. He starts negatively. This is what you are not to do. You are not to exasperate your children. The Greek word could be translated to irritate or to provoke to anger, which is what exasperate means. It is found in a form that really gives us the indication here that what is in view is a habitual irritation, a provoking of anger that is habitual. The idea, of course, is not that you will never irritate or anger your children in any way. We can say that simply by experience because that's utterly impossible. The most permissive parent on earth will irritate and anger their children at times as will the most stringent. That's not the point, that they will never be irritated, never angered. The point is that we should not relate to our children in such a manner that they characteristically seethe with bitter resentment and long to vent their hostility toward us. You can see it sometimes on the face of older children particularly. There's a darkness to the eyes. There's an anger that's in the heart that shows on the face and evidences itself at times in the behavior of this child. Now this is a very interesting idea because it is really in in a direct sense saying that the test of our parenting is the spirit of our children. That's kind of scary. The test of our parenting in part is the spirit of our children. Every child who is faithfully parented will get frustrated. They will get angry with mom and dad from time to time. But if a child habitually seethes with bitterness and animosity and disrespect, the problem lies with the parents. There are many common contributing factors to this. We don't know what they all are and we don't understand every relationship with every child. But certainly exasperated kids are produced in times by parental selfishness. By smothering protection. By unrealistic expectations. By callous insensitivity. By neglect. And the list can go on and on. But we are called here in the agenda that we set with our families, first of all, to make sure that we do not exasperate our children. That is our job. That is our agenda. We are to see to it. And fathers, ultimately that agenda is set by you in your homes. Our homes should not be a place where our children are becoming bitter and angry and seething with frustration. If they are, fathers, you need to take charge and change that by God's grace and patiently. Now, positively, this is not what the agenda is. This is what you are to avoid, if we want to say it that way. We are to bring them up in the training of the Lord. Do not exasperate them. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I'd like to look at those two ideas of the very parallel of training and instruction of the Lord. Training is a word broadly defined, referring to both physical correction and to instructional guidance. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this word often of God's discipline of Israel for her sin and disobedience. 
We find it in Hebrews 12, a parental discipline that brings painful consequences to bear upon a child's life. This is my agenda, to train my child. And there's a prerequisite belief here, isn't there? I don't need to train a child who is not a sinner. I don't need to bend the child who is not a sinner. This command rests on the belief that children are sinners by nature and require moral correction and moral direction. They need this from us. Our children are naturally bent against disciplined, orderly living. They are naturally bent against wise decision-making, responsible behavior, respectful speech, and selfless love. So left to themselves, they will naturally pursue what? They will naturally pursue self-centered, unloving, undisciplined, and spiritually destructive paths. It's in them, just as it is in all of us. So as parents, we must actively train our children to avoid these paths. That's our agenda. The picture that I get in my mind here is that we stand in their way and we say, not this way, this way. We stand up to what their natural bent is and we say, no and yes. The liar needs to be trained. It is wrong to lie. You must teach and speak the truth. The undisciplined child needs to be trained to control his or her passions. The cheater and manipulator needs to be taught integrity and compassion. The bully needs training and compassion and mercy and love. The supersensitive child needs to learn endurance and selflessness. The fearful and timid child needs to be trained to have courage and to fear God more than man. And the lazy child needs to be trained to work hard. And all of this will take conversation. This training, not this way, but this way, will take conversation. We must talk to our children constantly. And that is the idea I draw more from the idea of instruction. We are to bring them up in the training of the Lord. We are to bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. The word indicates verbal reproof and counsel. We are called here to use our words as tools by which to teach what is right and what is wrong, to teach the ways in which we will glorify God in the ways in which we will not And I think under the word training, there is a physical aspect of discipline to this that the Bible commends. But that physical aspect is always intended to produce a time of teaching and submission of the Spirit so that teaching can take place. This conversation is to take place in the give and flow of life. We read earlier this month, Deuteronomy chapter 6, you remember from that passage, Teach your children when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Bind these truths upon their hearts. Teach them. First, you are to be impressed with them, and then you are to teach them to to your children in the give and flow of life. We should teach God's truth when we drive in the car and when we sit in our living rooms and when we tuck our kids into bed. Deuteronomy 6 does not commend long, windy lectures. Now there's a time for that. There's a time when you have to do that. 
But Deuteronomy 6 really doesn't commend long, windy lectures as much as short snippets of truth winsomely shared along the road of life. I tell you, you want to find a place to exasperate your children, it's to preach too much, where everything turns into a sermon. You're on the high road to exasperating your children. It goes on the other side of things too far when we don't talk about the things of God. And we act as if there's this secular world out there in which God really has no interest. God doesn't care that we stop at a stop sign. God doesn't care about the implications of a television show. God doesn't care about how that friend treated you at school and what a hard day you're having. We bring the truth of God to bear in the give and take of life in small snippets of wisdom and information, not always with a Bible reference and not always with a Bible verse. We can use the Bible as a bludgeon and exasperate our children. But does biblical truth saturate your speech? Whether they always know it or not, do you think as God thinks and lead your children to think in the same way? We are to steer the hearts of our children to God in a way that does not alienate them, but in a way that definitely challenges their nature. And the starting point earlier in the passage is... Verses 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. To obey and to honor. My calling then as a parent, as I go out of this hospital, so to speak, with this little bundle and take this child home, my first agenda is to begin to train this child to obey me and to honor me. There's only a certain way you can pull that off, and it isn't by sheer force, believe me. It's going to take winsome, thoughtful application of biblical truth on a daily basis to bring our children to a place of obedience with honor. We are to steer and to guide them to moral integrity of word and action and attitude, which starts by teaching them to obey us in word and action and attitude. We have no business permitting our children to set our agenda. Ours is not a calling to endure as much as we can endure from our children. I've shared this story in the past, but I remember a father talking to me about his little child saying to his wife, Mommy is dumb. Mommy is bad. And he took up the mantra in the car for this long car ride. Mommy is dumb. Mommy is bad. And the mother brought the child home and put the child to bed and the kid went to sleep saying, Mommy is dumb. Mommy is bad. And Dad was so impressed with the patience of his wife. That may be a particularly patient mother, but she missed an opportunity. That's a time for training and teaching. That's not a time for patience. We do not let the children set the agenda. We do not simply endure all that we can endure from our children. We train them in the instruction of the Lord. It is our fundamental responsibility as parents to teach them to submit their will to our will. Let's get real pointed about it. 
Children obey your parents means that children need to come to a place where they submit their will to your will. Now that doesn't sound so nice in our culture right now, but that's really the bottom line. It's not that I offer to them suggestions. It's that I offer to them a call. And it is their job to learn the moral responsibility to submit to my will and to do so with tender hearts in a way that honors their mother and father. It means simple little things for little children. It means calling them to us and expecting that they will come with a right spirit. Now there's going to be a lot of work to get that established. That's not going to happen naturally. But this is the call that needs to come. It means with teens that they will honor the house rules. They will listen to music and wear clothes and work a job and see friends according to your approval. You are the parent. Now there's a day when our teens will leave our homes, when they will move on and they will set their own agenda and their own way of life, but that time is not when they're 14 years of age. There's a day when they will be free from your authority. There's a day when, by God's grace, they're moving to that place, but they're not there yet. It is our fundamental responsibility to teach them moral wisdom by the way that we live and by the words of counsel that we employ in their daily training. Now, I don't know who I talk to entirely here today. There's some who visit with us, and we're grateful for your presence here, but I don't know where we're all at. But I'll tell you, I look at the culture in which we live, and these are weird ideas, aren't they? They are radically opposed to the culture in which we live. Our culture is dead set against this biblical agenda. And we need to remember this. We are going into the teeth of a roaring lion when it comes to these ideas. You can look at documents at the UN. You can look at documents of the public school system. You can look at documents of our government. You can look at the media that is all around. This is not the way our world thinks. And it starts because our world denies the doctrine of human depravity and rejects God's truth. Therefore, our world is at fundamental odds with this verse. Author K. Himowitz ably describes our culture's popular opposition to this emphasis. I draw a few ideas from her writings and an article from which I've drawn them. The first is the notion of the self-regulating infant. We are seeing this pretty pervasively in the writings of our day. The self-regulating infant. This child is born with a predisposition to blossom and flower and become something really special. Just get out of the way. Help them with cognitive learning, provide the physical needs that they have, and get out of the way and watch what happens. Because they're pre-programmed to greatness. God doesn't think that, frankly. And even though I've been taken to task by a pastor in our community here recently about the fact that I say that kind of thing, I think I'm right to say God doesn't think that. We're being told we can never speak for God. I would agree with that, but there's times when God speaks for God, and I can quote him. He says, 
Train up your children in the nurture and admonition, the instruction, the training of the Lord. He is teaching us in His Word that our children need to be bent. They need to be directed. The self-regulating infant is a myth. Secondly, is the idea of relating to children as if they are adults. This is a pervasive orientation and emphasis of our day. We have the classic pendulum swing, where we have homes in the past where children were not permitted to do much, and we have the pendulum swing now, a generation later, where children are given the responsibilities that they should not have until they are adults. This is a pervasive problem in our day. And thirdly is what Himowitz calls the elongation of youth. What a great phrase, and you know what she means. The elongation of youth. That is young adults who, as she puts it, loiter on the outskirts of adulthood. This is the 20-something kid that would rather play video games than get a job. Let me tell you, that doesn't just happen. That comes from a certain idea about parenting. And you could fill in a lot of other blanks, but the elongation of youth. Our culture is pressing these agendas. In contrast, our job as Christian parents is to actively train our children to be what they do not naturally want to be. To teach them to live maturely and wisely. We're not to ask them what they think about the process. We are not to adjust our moral training to their agenda. We are to set the agenda and to carry it through to the glory of God. Now in all of this, it seems to me that parenting is really like walking on a balance beam. You know that piece of wood in gymnastics and you fall off one side or the other so easily. Isn't that what parenting is like? We have on the one side of the beam the suffocating restrictions of some parents who exasperate their children by constantly squashing everything. And we have on the other side of the beam those who give their children way too much rope and they hang themselves in moral folly. On the other side of the beam, we have the isolationism from the world that pervades in many Christian homes. And on the other side, capitulation to the world. On the one side, a supersensitivity to our children, and on the other side, an insensitivity to them. On the one side, expectations that are far too high, and on the other side, expectations that are far too low. We know it's a balancing act. We know we don't, don't all hit it the same way, and we know that there are times when we fail, and we fall off the beam on one side or the other. But I, I find it, by the way, extremely frustrating to talk about parenting in 45 minutes. That's it. We move on next week. I struggle to know what in the world to say and to, to crystallize and to put it down into tangible words. But I would say, with all of these issues of balance, I think that we are, as a people, far overbalanced in the area of prayerlessness. We expect our children to grow and to love God and to be trained in His ways and to know His truth. And how often do we submit to ourselves and do not talk to God? 
Now, our child idolatry can filter into our prayers. And we can turn our prayers into nothing more than I want this for my kids. But I think if understood in the right way, we need to discern the will of God and we need to pray that as parents we discern the will of God and we need to support one another with our prayers. We need to pray for one another's children because there's a spiritual battle going on here. We need to pray and we need to pray hard. And then, let me say with that, call to prayer. That the major issue here is to see our children from a distinctly biblical perspective and to press a biblical agenda in their training. The goal in it all is the glory of God. The results we cannot always control. The failures along the way we'd like to forget. But in it all we need to see them as God counsels us to see them and to press the agenda with them that God lays out in His Word. I've shared this story as well in the past in this context, but it's a story that I always remember, in one sense kicking myself, and in another sense with some measure of humor. But on occasion, our family loves to go to Old Country Buffet. That's probably restaurant number one. We don't go there very often, but now and then, and it's a, a great joy to go there. It's also quite a challenge. I remember one of those challenges with four kids at ages six, four, two, and one. You fill in the blanks at a restaurant. And as people watched us sit down, you can see the looks on their faces. <laughs> That's the end of this uh, comforting meal. Uh, four kids, six, four, two, and one. What in the world's going to happen here? Well, in God's grace and His grace alone, I can give you a whole lot of stories of failure, but this was one of the successes. They just did wonderfully well through the whole meal, and we had a great time talking and just spending that time together as a family. I was up at the uh, dessert buffet, and a lady came up to me and, like, accosted me. I was a little worried about what she was up to. She just got right in my face. And she said, I want you to know that I've been watching your family, and I cannot believe what behavior was demonstrated, and just the aura and the spirit of your family. I am really, really impressed. Are you Jewish? She said to me. <laughs> and this is where I kick myself, because man, did I come up with a good answer about three minutes later. <laughs> I was so dumbfounded, I, I didn't know what to say. But I thought, had I been sharp enough, what a great response it would have been. No, I'm not Jewish, but I worship the Messiah. And that, by the grace of God, is the only reason for anything good that anyone has ever seen in my family. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that has had any good influence on my relationship with my wife and my children. They're His ideas. It is His light. It is His goodness to us. We serve an all-wise God whom we've come to know through the Messiah. And His truth is wise, immense, and beautiful. And anything good that you see is a reflection of His character and His nature. And I say this to you in part, Eden Baptist Church, because I mean this to the core of my being. 
There are no good ideas about parenting that are not grounded in the truth of God's Word. It is in the light of what He has revealed to us that we find hope and that we find fruitfulness. We fall short. We fall down. But the reason is never, will you hear me, it is never because God's Word is incomplete. It is sufficient for everything that pertains to life and godliness. His Word is complete. It is rich. It is full. And in the light of that Word... He gives us guidance concerning parenting and concerning everything else in life. He teaches me every day not to worship myself in my children. Not to worship my children, but to worship Jesus Christ. It is His honor and His glory that is at stake, not mine. And if I can faithfully stand before Him and say that I have done what I should do according to your light and by his grace I trust that he will commend me and I know that along the way I will reap the rich rewards of his deep, immense and infinite wisdom. May we hold the right attitude and may we pursue the right agenda so that in our parenting Jesus Christ is magnified. Parenting is worship. Who do you worship? Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, your word makes us feel very small and warms our hearts at the same time. We thank you for the greatness and the bigness of your truth. And I pray, dear God, as we Consider what you have said to your church through your spirit that each one of us in our unique setting and situation will filter it appropriately. There are some people who could wish to have been parented by parents who had such a vision. God, my heart aches for them and longs for them, but I pray, Father, that you will reveal to them in the quiet of this moment that you are the perfect Father and that you comfort, will comfort and love them and guide them. And anything that they have missed in the past, you can make up for it a thousand times over. May they run into the arms of Christ today. And my heart aches for parents who look back and those who look around and see failure and difficulty and discouragement and disappointment. Father, I pray that you'll comfort their hearts. We need a hard word from you, but perhaps that hard word is needed less by some than others. And I pray, God, that you will comfort and encourage and strengthen, and again, that they would run into the arms of Christ and know, Father, that you are a perfect Father. How we thank you that we are your children. For those who struggle along and strive to honor your word, God, I pray that you would grant success. I pray that we would know the joy and the gift of your word and its guidance to us as we parent. Please help us in this immense task, this grand journey. I pray, above all, that we will parent as we do everything else to the glory of Jesus Christ. Help us not to just have a good concept and a good idea, but to put it into practice. 
and to train up our children in the instruction and the fear of God. I pray to this end, and I pray for our children. God, keep us from exasperating them and keep us from not training them. May they grow to love and to serve you and to realize that everything that they see in us that is weak and fallen and not good is not your fault. But may they run into your arms and know that you are a perfect father. We thank you, God, for this training that you bring into our lives and pray that your blessing would rest upon our church and upon our individual families, that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted high is our prayer. Amen.